Good morning, everybody. It's good to be back with you today. Um, before I get going, I want to say a big thank you to Paul McGrew for stepping in last week. Um, I think he did an excellent job continuing in our series, and taking the week off was really helpful for me and for my family. And um, as, I, as we all kind of continue to recover from our, our tango with the coronavirus, um, on that front, you should know that by the time you see this, um, we should all theoretically be back in the clear. Um, all five of us here have had the virus at some point or another over the last four weeks, um, but we have all come out on the other side, and now we have a bit of this immunity that everybody's always talking about, um, and so that's fun. As far as our teaching for this week goes, our job today is to wrap up our series on the first half of the book of Hebrews. Now, as that statement suggests, we're going to be coming back to this book later in the year. And when we do, we will be focusing on how we respond as a church to the argument that the author of Hebrews has been making here about the centrality and the superiority of Jesus. But before we get to that work, um, we're going to tackle a few other big ideas about what it means for us as a church to be this community of hope and I think that by tackling those things first, it's going to help set the stage for the work that comes later in the best possible way. So if all that means that applications are going to be a while, then it's probably worth asking at the start today, what are we actually trying to do now? How do we wrap up the first half of a book? Well, I actually want to start um, this morning by asking you to do something. And this is one of those moments where virtual church can actually really shine because you actually had the opportunity here to pause the video in a second and actually take as much time as you need to do the thing that I'm asking you to do. Um, I guess it's also where virtual church uh, is at its worst too and that there is no accountability in this. And I have no ability to tell um, whether you did it or not. But my encouragement is that in just a moment, you pause the video and you do this. I think it'll make the, the message today more resonant. Um, but what am I asking you to do? Well, what I'm asking is I want you to think about the most beautiful place that you have ever been in your life. I want you to think about the most beautiful place you've ever been, a place that you most want other people to visit to. So not just something that was unique in a moment, like uh, seeing an eclipse or something like that, but um, something beautiful that you've seen or a beautiful place you've, you've been that you actually would love for other people to go and share in that experience. And that's something they could actually do. Um, the place you love to share more than anywhere else. That's another way of putting it. So I want you to kind of try and lock that in your mind. And now that you've got it, I want you to try and capture that place in a creative way. Find yourself a piece of paper and try to sketch it out or write a poem about it if that's your, your thing. Or you could take a page from Meredith's book and cross stitch it. But whatever uh, works for you, take a few minutes here and, and try to capture that beautiful place in a way that might motivate somebody else to go visit it too. Okay, uh, that was the pause, so we're back, and I assume you're all done. Well, 
Thanks to the magic of knowing where all this is going, um, I'm gonna share my picture that I made with you guys too. Um, here it is. This is a picture of Glacier National Park in northwestern Montana. Um, this summer, my family and I are hoping to make up for more than a year in quarantine by taking a trip out west, um, pandemic pending, of course. And one of our stops on that trip, if we're able to go, is going to be Glacier National Park, which is a place that I've been a few times before and one I am incredibly excited about sharing with Meredith and sharing with the kids. And that is why I painted this picture of St. Mary Lake a few months back, um, because as we were talking about the trip, I wanted to get them excited about going there. But of course, here's the thing, right? This picture is not Glacier National Park. This picture is not even close. And your pictures aren't the thing that they're trying to capture either. Even a photograph, if you've been somewhere beautiful and took a photograph, even a photograph isn't enough. So the question that I want us to start with is asking, what is a picture like this for then, anyways? If it's not good enough, why paint it? This week, as we close out our discussion on the ways the author of Hebrews describes the superiority of Jesus over the rhythms and the rituals of the Old Covenant, this is the question that we have finally arrived at. If all of Judaism, from Abraham to Moses to David to the temple, if all of that is inferior to what God has done in and through Jesus, then why did God paint them in the first place? A friend of mine in seminary once posed this question a different way. He said, if God has a better plan, why didn't he start with that one? If God has a better plan, why didn't he start with that one? Last week, Paul said that timing was everything. Specifically, he pointed out that one of the most fascinating things about the entire book of Hebrews is when, in Israel's story, that book or that letter was likely written. As Paul noted, the letter of Hebrews is almost certainly written in the decade of the 60s, AD. And this is notable because in the year 70, the second temple in Jerusalem is reduced to rubble after anchoring the faith of the Israelites for nearly 600 years. We know this from Roman history because it's the Romans who destroy it. But in the year 70, the temple, which had stood for 600 years, is destroyed. And as we look back on that, as we think about that, there's just simply no way that we can comprehend the impact that that kind of event would have on Judaism in the first century. The temple is essential to the practice of their faith. The temple is the place where the holy relics of Judaism are kept. It's the place where ritual sacrifices, which are critical to the forgiveness of sins, are carried out and have been carried out for hundreds of years. The temple, simply put, 
is the place where God lives among them. And in the year 70, the temple is utterly gone. Which I think casts the letter of Hebrews in this incredibly important light because this letter, which is written mere years before that temple is destroyed, is written to Jewish Christians who are facing persecution from both Rome, which is going to accelerate into the destruction of the temple, and also from their Jewish families. And its message, the message of the letter, is that Christianity is not a threat to Judaism. Rather, that Christianity is the thing that Judaism was always pointing towards. Which means that in Christianity in general, and in Christ in particular, the work of that temple finds perfect fulfillment. What is being incompletely done there in Jerusalem, in the temple, has been completely done at the cross. So the writer of Hebrews is saying to people, don't give up. The things that you believe are the fulfillment of that story. The things that you believe make sense. And for the author of the book of Hebrews to send this letter to the people functionally on the eve of the destruction of the temple is so hugely important because it means that the anchor for their hope was planted before the storm came that was going to threaten to carry them all away. We see all of this come to a head in chapter 9, which begins like this. And this is a long passage, but stick with me. Now the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. A tabernacle was set up. In its first room were the lampstand and the table with its consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place, which had the golden altar of incense and the gold-covered Ark of the Covenant. But only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year, and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins the people had committed in ignorance." The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still functioning. This is an illustration for the present time, indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. They are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the new order. But when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands. That is to say, is not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. 
the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean, sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. Now that's a super long passage, but I think we can track with it here together. The author is saying that that temple, the one still standing at that moment in Jerusalem, isn't the fulfillment of the Jewish faith. It's an illustration of something that then came to pass with Jesus. When Jesus establishes himself as a perfect high priest, as we talked about two weeks ago, he walks a path that the paths of the early high priests have always gestured towards but couldn't complete on their own. Instead of walking through the curtain into the most holy place in the temple, which is where God metaphorically dwells, Jesus has actually walked into heaven itself where God actually dwells. And instead of accessing God by the purifying blood of a few sacrificial animals, which the author says here has always been a symbolic thing, because of course it's symbolic. The blood of a bull or a goat cannot reunite you with the real God. Instead of accessing God by this symbolic blood, Jesus accesses God by his own perfect blood. And then lastly, the author here says that instead of interceding with God in order to make those who confess to the priests outwardly clean, the author here wonders, what then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, what will that blood accomplish? Wouldn't it stand a reason? Wouldn't it echo the things that Jesus himself said? that what that blood accomplishes is an inward cleanliness, an inward perfection, which animal sacrifices alone were never able to accomplish. I know this is all a bit dense, but it's just impossible to overstate how important it is in the history of our faith and how critical it is, even to us now, if we pause to really let it all sink in. In chapter 9, the author of Hebrews is saying that the temple in Jerusalem is that painting of Glacier National Park. The temple is the cross-stitch of the ocean. The temple is the poem about a sunset. The temple is the image that God gave us, which can never measure up to the real thing. So to circle that back to our question this morning, why does he do it? Why does he do it? Why send the picture instead of sending the park all those centuries and millennia ago? The answer to that question is because the picture focuses our eye on what, when we go there in person, we're going to be invited to see. The picture focuses our eye on what, when we go there in person, we will be invited to see. The picture, in other words, prepares us 
for what is coming. The argument being made here is that the struggles of the old covenant, the struggles of the temple, are the things that make Jesus make sense. The gap between wandering in our own deserts, knowing that we're made to live by this moral code that we can never seem to live up to, and then becoming lost as we look for the face of a God who is too perfect to even recognize if we saw him. The gap between that experience and what happens in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, that gap is just simply too much for us to grasp. To understand atonement, we have to have this image of sacrifice. To understand God's grace, we have to have the image of the empathetic priest. To understand sanctification, we have to live in relationship with someone who is both God and man. To understand access to a perfectly holy God, we have to have a temple divided by this curtain that only the high priest can move through and then only once a year. The centuries of the temple and its ties, its, its anchoring of the culture and the behavior and the, and the life of the Jewish people of Israel, the centuries of its existence provide a vocabulary for Jesus to make sense. God started with the image and not the revelation because the image helps the revelation make sense to us. But here's the problem for the Jews of the first century in general and the problem for Jewish Christians in particular. After centuries living with the picture, some of them have lost an eye for what the picture promises. And we know this because hundreds of years before Jesus was even born, the prophet Jeremiah reminded the people of Israel that the temple was always intended to be a temporary solution. That the temple, in other words, was always intended to be an image of what was coming. The prophet Jeremiah wrote to the people in words that every Jewish person in Jerusalem would know. He wrote to them that, quote, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. God had been saying for centuries that the old would pass away and that something new, something perfect, would replace it. 
No longer would the people need the books of the law because the laws of God would be written in their hearts. No longer would they need rituals to find God because God would make himself unmissable to them. No longer would they need the routine of sacrifice because their sins would be forgiven and remembered no more. The temple would give them the image, but what God was going to do would be impossible to ever truly capture. And yet, when Jesus walked among them, when Jesus walked in that very temple, almost nobody could recognize him. He was clear over and over about who and what he was. But rather than hear him, the leaders of the temple had him arrested and had him beaten and had him executed as a liar proclaiming to be the Son of God from the Scriptures. The leaders of the temple in the first century were in love with the painting. So much so, they forgot that it only ever existed to be an arrow pointing to a place that they needed more than anything to visit. And all of this, I think, is necessary for making sense of one of the most curious parts of the gospel stories about Jesus's death on the cross. Specifically, in Matthew's account, in the moment Jesus dies, something altogether unusual and seemingly out of place in the whole story happens in Jerusalem. Matthew 27, 50 through 51 says, And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. He dies. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The curtain of the temple was torn in two. Here's what I think is happening. That curtain was the same curtain separating the Holy of Holies, the most holy place, the only place, or a place that only the high priest could go, and then, and then he could only do it once a year. The reason for that was because that holiest of holy places was the place God dwelled on earth. That curtain separated the place God dwelled on earth from the people. It was an image, yes, God didn't really live on the other side of that curtain, and the curtain, of course, is just a curtain. But despite being a symbol, it was a symbol that had become so important to the people that they had lost sight of the thing that that symbol was pointing them towards. They had fallen in love with the portrait, the picture, the poem. They thought that this was Glacier National Park. But this isn't, and it never was. So what does God do? He destroys the picture. Because something better than the picture has come. If the curtain in the temple is torn, if the curtain in the temple is torn, what then can separate us from God's love? What can separate us from Him? 
What can separate us from God's mercy, from God's forgiveness, from God's presence? Chapter 10, the author of Hebrews writes, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is, his body, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. If Jesus is a better message, if Jesus is a better prophet, a better priest, a better covenant, a better sacrifice than what has come before, if he opens our way into the Holy of Holies, into God's presence, the question is, what can we do there? Now that the way is open, what do we do? What can you or I or anyone else do here with this privilege? And in this passage, the author of Hebrews says that we can do just two beautiful things. First, we can draw near. Access to the God of the universe is an unimaginable gift. And so don't let fear or worry or a sense of not being good enough keep you from experiencing God's love and His kindness towards you. Let yourself be loved by God. Let yourself be welcomed. I'm saying all this, but... If I'm honest with you, this is something that I struggle with so, 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 so much. Honestly, though, it's something that the pandemic has helped me with. Spending so much time alone and feeling so out of control of myself, especially after I contracted the virus last month, this last month. We should talk sometime. Talk about being out of control. In any case... In this experience, I've been confronted with this reality that I'm not earning God's favor or grace. There's nothing that I'm doing that is special. There is no amazing thing that I can ever do that makes me deserve God's attention. And yet, because of who He is, and in my own experiences in the last month, I know I have it. I know I have his attention. And that means that it is his generosity that is behind every single minute that I am alive. It is his generosity that is behind every friendship that I treasure with many of you. It's his generosity that is behind every person out there who cares for me. And as I understand that more and more, what I'm beginning to realize is how free I am to simply love other people. 
because they deserve it as much as I do, which isn't to say that they deserve it because of anything they're doing, but just because of who they are and who made them. And that means that as I think about my relationships with other people, it's not about winning, it's not about victory, it's not about a church growth strategy. I'm loving other people or I'm trying to love other people simply because as I'm drawing nearer to a God who loves me, I'm able to live in the freedom that that love creates to do my best to love somebody else. Now, I don't mean to only talk about myself in this, but I am hoping that maybe hearing where I'm at helps you see where you are too. And where we are is that the curtain is torn in two and we can draw near to God and we can experience his love for us, period, period. We can be known. The way is open for us to be known. And there's freedom in experiencing that. The second thing that we can do, the author of Hebrews says, is that we can hold to the hope that we profess. We can hold to the hope that we profess. The hope of Christianity isn't a ritual or even a promise. We've talked about this before. The hope of Christianity, the hope of Christianity is a person person. And what we profess about that person as Christians, what you're in the process of making a decision about, if you're listening to this and you're not a Christian, is whether or not, or is that we believe that he was dead, that there was a person, Jesus, and that Jesus was dead and then rose again. That's what we profess about him. And the reason we profess it is because That means that his life was, and his life still is, indestructible. That is why, in the book of Hebrews, as we've been talking about it over the last month, that is why we see that Jesus fits this role as this perfect sacrifice. Because, being indestructible, the love that he is pouring out for us is never wholly consumed. The forgiveness that he is purchasing for us never runs out. And so when we hold to the hope that we profess, we're putting our trust day in and day out in the wisdom and in the love of an indestructible Jesus to direct the course of our own lives in the confidence that a life in his image is just as indestructible. Christians live in imitation of Jesus, not just because it seems like a good way to spend our time here on this planet. We live in imitation of Jesus because we believe that a loving God is inviting us to participate in his perfect plan for his creation. In this moment of such tremendous fragility in our world, we can find an anchor in the overwhelming love of the person that all the pictures have been pointing towards. That's the good news of the gospel that is available to you, that's available to me, that's available to everybody. 
It's what we all have the opportunity to freely believe and then to be transformed in our willingness to believe it. If we have access to God, if we have access to God, we have access to His Son. Or rather, more precisely, His Son has access to us. And all of the Bible has been written to paint this picture of a God who so loves the world that He gives His only Son that whosoever believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. That is what is beautiful. That's what you are invited. That's what we're all invited if we put down the picture to see. Please talk to me sometime if that's something that you're ready to do. And if anybody out there has questions, please talk to me about those too. And for now, I'll pray for us. And then we can continue in worship this morning. God, stir our hearts in this. Convict us. God, show yourself to us. Help us to see in you the, the real thing that, that so many signs and pictures in our life have been pointing towards. God, help us to see you, to put down the pictures and to see you. God, you have lived an indestructible life. And more than that, you've invited us to join you, to live after you and in your example. God, I pray that every one of us will choose that, that we'll choose that today, that we'll choose it every day, to live in imitation of you. God, thank you for who you are. Thank you for loving us so much. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the pictures that you've given us, the images that point to who you are. It's through them that we know you. God, thank you. We love you in your son's name. Amen.